This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. Why now? Why haven't we gone after him in the past seven or eight years? And and also, like you said, he might not be a senior military leader, but he clearly, they're, they're acting as if he was like a government official of some sort. Is this kind of a, the highest level guy officially attacked uh, by the U.S., uh, you know, not covertly, but officially? Yeah, sort of picture, picture the Al-Quds forces being the CIA, but with a much better budget, uh, a much longer rope, and a whole lot more guns. Um, and no oversight. Uh, so that's kind of what the Goods Force is, and that's what he was doing. And the attack on the U.S. Embassy, of course, was organized by the proxies of El Quds. So that's the thing. So the question, of course, it's a great question. Why now? Why not a year ago? Why not five years ago? So right now, World War Three is trending on Twitter. Everyone's nervous. I'm nervous. I want, I, you know, every, uh, suddenly everyone has become like uh, uh, an Iranian military expert on Facebook. I love how everybody didn't even know who Soleimani was th- four days ago. And now everyone on Twitter and Facebook's an expert. So I called a real expert, Tom Quiggin. Tom, how's it going? Things are great, James. And like you say, it's a very interesting time period. And that's interesting in the Chinese sense of the term. Right. And uh, may we not live in interesting times, maybe, is the, is the case here. But I, I, by, in order to intro you, uh, Tom, you're a uh, former intelligence officer. You worked in Bosnia. You um, worked for the International War Crimes Tribunal. You were, uh, you're a senior research fellow with the Canadian Center of Intelligence and Security Studies. You're an adjunct at the Royal Military College. You've written books on national security and intelligence, plus uh, you know the Islamic State and, and everything that's going on in the Middle East. You're the expert. Uh, uh, you know, I have no idea where you stand on all these things. I just want to know, uh, you know, what's going on. Okay, well, just just by way of a bit of background here, my interest in General Soleimani first began back in about 2012 in a serious way when he left Iran, went down to Egypt, and he was helping the then Muslim Brotherhood government of Egypt set up a new intelligence agency. And the Muslim Brotherhood wanted this new intelligence agency to crush internal dissent in Egypt and to extend Egypt's power around the region. And of course, if you want an expert in doing that, the Al-Quds force in Iran, those are the folks you call. This is what he does. So so let's put this in perspective even. It seems like just from the little bit I'm reading is that Iran, because they have, let's, let's call it limited military resources on their own, uh, they use these proxy armies like in Iraq. They use I- Iraq forces from the Muslim Brotherhood in uh, Libya. They use or Lebanon. They use Hezbollah. They use Hamas. They use, in Syria, they do their own thing. And 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 this guy, Soleimani, Soleimani uh, kind of organizes it all all around the Middle East. He was the main guy. Yeah, it's worth pointing out that a lot of people have referred to him as a senior military commander when, in fact, he's not. Uh, he's actually a part of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, which is a Praetorian Guard force for the uh, Iranian government, and they also control about half of Iran's economy. 
And Soleimani himself was head of the Al-Quds Force, which is a sort of a quasi-intelligence force and a quasi-covert operations force, which like literally kills people and organizes small wars around the world. So right now, the Al-Quds Force has their fingers in conflicts in Lebanon as Hezbollah takes over more of the government, Syria, as of course the government is collapsing there, Yemen. Uh, the war in Yemen is largely due to the Saudis' intolerance of the Iranian influence flowing into that area, et cetera, et cetera. And Gaza, even Hamas, which is a longstanding Sunni force, is increasingly looking at the Al-Quds force, which is a Shia outfit, but they're willing to cooperate at a certain level if the enemies in conflict are so, uh, are common. So let me ask like a, a naive question. Um, was was the Quds force, this, this force that this guy controlled, uh, were they involved at all with Al-Qaeda or ISIS? Like, what is there any linkage there? Okay, one of the things that's been floating around and the U.S. Secretary of State sort of stepped on it a bit here, uh, you know, saying that the Al-Quds force in Iran had a part in 9-11, which to the best of my knowledge is not true. However, it should be noted that following 9-11, the Iranians went out of their way to accommodate Al-Qaeda individuals who are being driven out of Afghanistan or needed a safe haven, including the son of Osama bin Laden. So did uh, Iran and the Al-Quds Force play a role in the operational planning and execution of 9-11? My belief is no, they did not. However, did they assist al-Qaeda after that point so that al-Qaeda could survive? Then the answer is yes, quite clearly they did. So, so, and, and again, I'm, I'm just going to ask some naive questions for a bit just to understand what happened. So this guy's been a bad guy all along. Like you said, 2012, that's like seven or eight years ago. This guy's been a bad guy all along. He's been probably responsible for, you know, civilian and military deaths and government upheavals in all these countries that you just mentioned. Uh, he was in Iraq you know, when he was killed. So clearly something he was up to no good there. He, he you know, they had just attacked this uh, U.S. base in Iraq and uh, Americans were killed. An American contractor was killed. And this was supposedly retaliation for that. Why now? Why haven't we gone after him in the past seven or eight years? And and also, like you said, he might not be a senior military leader, but he clearly they're, they're acting as if he was like a government official of some sort. Is this kind of the, the highest level guy officially attacked uh, by the U.S., uh, you know, not covertly, but officially? Yeah, sort of picture picture the Al-Quds forces being the CIA, but with a much better budget, uh, a much longer rope, and a whole lot more guns um, and no oversight. Uh, so that's kind of what the so, Al-Quds force so is, and that's what he was doing. And the attack on the U.S. embassy, of course, was organized by the proxies of Al-Quds. So that's the thing. So the question, of course, it's a great question. Why now? Why not a year ago? Why not five years ago? Well, he was up for assassination a couple of times, and it was uh, a British labor government that put a halt to it once. But here's kind of the thing. There's been some stuff going on lately. A lot of people have not been paying attention to the growing alliance between Turkey, Iran, Qatar, Pakistan to a certain degree, Malaysia, and as they're sort of growing this alliance and spreading it around the region, you see, for instance, Turkey is now threatening Cyprus, Turkey is moving troops into uh, Libya, Iran is growing its influence, and Qatar is to a large degree funding the extremism around the region, around the world. So that pressure has been building. As how, do you, how do you know this? Like when you say people should pay attention, because part of what I want to do here is create a framework so that people could try to understand for themselves what's, what's happening. Okay, so that's part of it. There's this growing alliance in the Middle East, uh, which is 
upsetting the status quo. And we can talk a bit more about that later because the status quo is clearly uh, changing in the Middle East. Uh, Iran is also now involved in five conflicts in the areas I mentioned, Syria, Lebanon, Yemen, Iraq, and Gaza. And Iran just recently was involved in the bombing of the Saudi oil field. They were involved in a, uh, attacks on tankers in the Gulf. There was a shoot. And these are, this isn't like allegedly or anything. This is like, we know this. This is pretty clear that Iran is trying to internationalize the conflict. They're pushing their muscles outward. And it's worth noting that in the past, they'd actually threatened Trump personally by saying, we can put people close to you and you won't know who they are. And that was quite open. So all of that stuff has been building. Now, I think when you ask the exact question, why now? Here's the answer. The attack on the U.S. embassy raised great fear in Trump circles because of the Benghazi moment. The Democrats were already saying, oh, this is going to be Trump's Benghazi moment. And the last thing he wants, of course, is to be labeled uh, as being weak, uh, such as was alleged happened in Benghazi. The other thing in the back, uh, the back of the mind of every U.S. president, of course, is also the Iranian attack on the U.S. embassy in 1979, where they took, I think it was 52 American hostages and held them for four hundred. So yeah, that destroyed that. the presidency of Carter. Uh, yeah. So any U.S. president, when he faces or he or she faces the uh, the overrun of an embassy, I'm not going to say they're going to panic, but they're going to respond hard. And I think Iran overplayed their hand on this one. Uh, so actually- so play, playing the devil's advocate a little bit, uh, you know, obviously people are linking this to uh, the impeachment proceedings and People are saying this is like that movie Wag the Dog where a, a president goes to war to avoid, you know, charges of corruption. And we saw this happen, you know, under Bill Clinton's presidency a little bit. Uh, so what how much should we pay attention to that? Yeah, there's always the question. Interesting enough, you can see a Wag the Dog moment in Iran right now. So Trump's got his problems with uh, the Democratic-controlled Congress, the impeachment process, whatever. And it's a general theory of politics that says if you've got internal problems at home, nothing like a good foreign war to focus people's attention somewhere else. Ironically enough, Iran's got its own problems right now. They're weak internally. Uh, Inflation was running earlier in 2019 at 50% per month. Although now it's the drop down to 25%. How is that possible? Like they're going to be like Zimbabwe. Uh, yeah. I mean, if you if you want a couple of examples, but Venezuela is a good example as well. I mean, Iran's going down the Venezuela route, which is kind of funny because Iran supports Venezuela, but that's a whole other story. Also, Iran is facing huge inter- internal dissent because of the crappy economy, because of an incredibly oppressive government. But a good deal of the resistance in Iran itself is coming from religious Shia who do not like the Ayatollah, don't like his government, and they disagree with the entire process. So Iran itself has been trying to internationalize uh, the conflict, partly to draw attention away from its own internal problems. So you've got both sides having the same problem in this case. I I didn't know that. I didn't know that there were um, other you know, extremists that were against the Ayatollah in Iran. I know there's a huge secular population in Iran, and I can understand. And and this guy, Soleimani, was involved in in squashing their protests about a year ago, but I didn't know that there was a religious component that that was uh, that didn't like the Ayatollah. Yeah, this is a bit complex, and I wouldn't call these folks extremists, but they're let's say Orthodox religious Shia who study the Quran, who understand Shiaism, who go to a mosque regularly, and they look at the Ayatollah himself and say he has no legitimacy. Now, very quick explanation here, but throughout all of Islam. There is virtually no one that says a religious scholar should be running the country. Uh, Within Sunni Islam, there's nothing like that. 
within uh, the the other factions of Islam, you find almost nothing. You won't find that amongst the Sufi or the Ahmadiyya. But within Shia Islam, which itself is divided into more than 10 different factions, there is one very tiny little faction of Shia Islam which says the leader of a country should be a religious scholar. And that's where the original Ayatollah Khomeini came from. And this is where Khomeini comes from, is he says, by virtue of being the fact he's a religious scholar, he's qualified to run the whole country, and only a religious scholar can run the whole country. Most Shia don't believe that. Most religious Shia in Iran don't believe it. But nonetheless, that's who they've got in charge. So, And is it because they have, uh, I mean, this is obvious, but because they've been... Uh in control of the military, they've been able to keep the population in control. It sounds like they're not a majority of Iran, but obviously they've stayed in control for a really long time. Yeah, I mean, the majority of Iranians, I don't think, uh, want to live under a religious Shia minority faction, which runs one of the world's most oppressive, misogynistic, and anti-gay governments literally on the face of the earth. But once the Iranians got into power, or, or more correctly, sorry, once Ayatollah Khomeini got into power, he created the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, uh, which plays a huge role in uh, keeping the country uh, under his uh, under his thumb. And uh, they also created the Al-Quds Force, uh, which both squashes internal uh, discontent and also operates overseas on their behalf. So it's a very powerful, tightly controlled government which is also very technical. Uh, they're very good at squashing dissent as soon as they see it forming on uh, social media and stuff like that. And it was this guy, Soleimani, that it was in charge of the both squashing dissent and in charge of their proxy wars, according to various articles that I've been looking at. Yeah. One of the other things people tend to forget, and this is actually kind of funny, when Khomeini first came into power in 1979, he did so with the cooperation of the left. Uh, a whole bunch of lefties in Iran and around the world supported him getting into power. As soon as he was in power, as soon as he had his power, shall we say, established, he turned around in a very short period of time and killed about 30,000 leftists. Uh, so it sort of shows just how incredibly intolerant he is of any force other than uh, other than themselves. So, OK, so, so to summarize the why now you have... Um Iran's been heating up proxy wars in all these different countries you mentioned, uh, from Lebanon to Qatar to Syria to Yemen to Israel, Iraq, obviously. And uh, uh, their economy's been weak, probably due to, in part, to these economic sanctions that the U.S. has on them. And uh, and they were, there was there was something they just attacked this U.S. base, so he was afraid of, uh, Trump was afraid of a Benghazi situation, and maybe they would continue attacking more and more if they felt like they could get away with this. Uh, and maybe there's a little bit of a wag the dog component here, too, to divert uh, from internal stuff. And the importance of that, we could we could discuss, particularly in terms of what happens next. But uh, so what's, what is going to happen next? What's 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 the reaction? There's a kind of all sorts of posturing now, like Iran's going to say we're retaliating. Trump says, you know, bring it. Then we're going to hit. We got 52 targets that we're looking at as well. What What's going on? Well, it's an interesting situation is the Iranian government's got itself. Uh, I think they've overextended themselves and they've got the they put themselves between the proverbial rock and the hard place. They can't be seen to back down at this point uh, without losing face entirely, which means they'll probably also lose their government inside Iran. They'll be overthrown. The other problem is they're militarily not that strong. Uh, their economy, to be blunt, sucks. 
and all the money they were sort of supposed to have got from recent agreements with the U.S. and Europe has gone into fighting wars in Syria and Yemen instead of, you know, pumping up the Iranian economy itself. So they got some problems there. What Iran does have, however, uh, is a series of proxies around the world, literally around the world, uh, which will carry out terrorist attacks if they are requested to do so. And of course, the leading proponent of that, of course, is Hezbollah. And Hezbollah itself has forces in being around the world, Canada, USA, Britain, France, Germany, whatever. What what do you mean USA? The the question is whether they'll do it or not. So let's just say you're Hassan Nasrallah. You know that all your money comes from Iran, and you get the message from Iran that says, use Hezbollah to attack America. Uh, So Hassan Nasrallah now has a question. Does he want to go one-on-one with the U.S. government led by Trump? Uh, And I don't think he does, because that'll be the end of him. That would give the American government the excuse to just wipe out Hezbollah. So it's it's a period of incredible tension. Um, You might remember the prime minister, the British prime minister, Harold Macmillan, and he was asked, you know, how are things going to shape? What will determine the future? And he answered, events, dear boy, events. So I don't think right now there's a solid plan in America. I don't think there's a solid plan in Iran, how this is all going to play out. It will the uh, the future of this could be shaped by any one of a series of minor events, which causes an overreaction. And I'm thinking here of the assassination of uh, the Archduke of Austria in Yugoslavia started World War One quite by accident uh, back in 914. And I think the same thing is, is in play today that uh what shapes the events of the future may be the individual actions of a few small groups, which then cause overreactions. At any rate, there's not going to be a ground war in Iran. America will not invade Iran. I've seen that. And that's just stupid. They don't want it. They can't afford it. And what would you do with it once you got it? Uh, right. Like, uh, well, 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 you can argue there's however many tens of millions. And again, I'm kind of playing devil's advocate on all sides. There's tens of millions of secular people in Iran that maybe we can eventually form an alliance with, and there could be a, a reasonable government in place. Yeah, I mean, if the uh, if the government of Iran itself collapsed, let's say tomorrow, for whatever internal reason, or if it got decapitated from the outside, uh, an intelligent approach by America, Europe, and the rest of the world could put a quasi-decent or quite decent government into Iran, because Persia was an educated society. Persia is an outward-looking society. It used to be a mainly secular society. And by the way, it's got a ton of wealth, uh, or at least it could if it wasn't you know, spending it in other areas. So the potential for a positive outcome here is, uh, is fairly good. I think what's happened is Trump, willingly or not, has got himself into a high-risk, high-reward kind of scenario that What's going on right now is incredibly risky, but it could also turn out reasonably well. Okay, what are what are the risks? Like, what's what's a worst case scenario that's not out of the realm of possibility? Um, a general war in the Middle East. I mean, there are so many different players with a. Uh, with sort of a hand in the pot here. It's incredible. Iran itself, which does have the capability to strike out at oil tankers, sink them in the Gulf or whatever. Uh, The Russians are involved. Uh, Israel's involved. America's involved. What's left of Syria is involved. What's left of Lebanon is involved. Saudi Arabia itself, uh, once a major player in the Gulf, when the Saudis used to speak, everybody else used to listen. Now that's not so clear. And I mean, one of the outcomes of this could be the collapse of the Saudi government, which could put God knows who in power in Saudi Arabia. How, how, how could, how could I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm bursting in just every time I'm curious, I have to ask, how could the Saudi government collapse as a result of this? 
the Saudi government at the end of the day is, is, a, is a dictatorship of a royal family. The Sauds themselves, i.e. the name of the country, Saudi Arabia, the Sauds are a family. It's the only country in the world named after a family. Um, they are not- That's a pretty good idea if I ever want to take over a country. Yes. Altaturland. There you go. You're all set. Um, yeah. The problem is they're not terribly popular throughout most of the country. The Bedouin themselves, who make up a, a good chunk of the population, look them look at them as townies and sort of say, ah, they're a bunch of disgusting merchants from the town who just happen to make out well. And uh, they're wildly unpopular as uh, uh, Mohammed bin Sultan there tries to, quote unquote, reform Saudi Arabia. So any, any dictatorship always has that problem of it could be knocked off tomorrow. But the Saudi government itself is in a particularly precarious position and it wouldn't be a shock to any observer in the region to see the Saudi government collapse in, if there is a uh, a war in the in the Middle East area right now because they are not strong, they're not popular. Their military, well, incredibly well funded, and it's got all kinds of shiny new toys. Um, actually, it's not that great in the sense that most Saudis don't want to be involved in doing hard work like infantry or field engineers or that sort of stuff. All they want to be is fighter pilots and generals. So a good chunk of the Saudi army is actually made up of mercenaries who are probably not willing to get murdered in a desert somewhere on behalf of a Saudi royal family. So yeah, so that that uh, you alluded earlier to like uh, regional shifts and changes and why now. One of the other things, you know, sort of question has to be asked, you know, how much will this change the Middle East? And I would say, like, it's, it's almost kind of the wrong question in the sense that the Middle East is changing rapidly now. This is just one more sign of it. Um, Iraq used to be the dominant power in that area. Now Iraq is a country no longer exists. Iran is a dominant power. The Saudis, who were kind of down to the southwest kind of thing, used to be an incredibly dominant power, and now they've weakened. Uh, Syria no longer exists effectively as a country. Yemen no longer exists as a country. And all the institutions and organizations we had in place around the world to control this kind of conflict aren't relevant anymore. Most of the institutions we have are post-World War II, Bretton Woods kind of institutions. So you've got the United Nations, which is a cobble now, which does nothing effective. Uh, you've got NATO, which is running around the world trying to find a mission for itself. You've got the World Bank, uh, the WTO, as far as can be told, nobody noticed it, but a couple of weeks ago, it lost its sort of enforcement and assessment capability. Uh, and the countries upon which this stuff was based are, are gone, like Iraq's gone, Yemen's gone, Syria's gone, Lebanon's gone. Uh, so the Middle East itself is in a huge state of upheaval. And this so, is so it's not, it sounds like Iran was basically upping the stakes bit by bit until we couldn't take it anymore. And, it, and it, it, like Iran kept saying maybe Iran gambled incorrectly that the U.S. would not retaliate because it almost seems like an act of war. And we, we, we were so uh, as a country up in arms about the Iraq war. It's clear that, again, as a country, we don't want to engage in another you know, 20 year war. So maybe they were, they were taking this bet and it didn't work out in the case of this one guy so far. Yeah. A couple of things going on there. One of them is the mythology around Suleimani himself. They've created this guy who is incredibly bright, who was incredibly effective, who did a lot, but they mythologized him and made him into this God who could not be conquered. You know, he walked upon the land and people bowed in front of him. And I think what got him killed actually was he got sloppy. He thought he was so important and so serious that no one would take a run at him. And of course, as it turns out, his assessment was wrong. Uh, the other thing that's kind of going on here, though, like we've alluded to, is uh, 
the Iranians are trying to reshape the Middle East in their own image and likeness. They really thought that they could control the Middle East. And in the past, uh, the last five, six, seven years, they've been able to sort of humiliate the United States on a number of occasions. And Trump has made it clear he doesn't want any more forever wars. He's trying to get out of the Middle East. He's trying to get out of Afghanistan, which many people read as a sign of weakness, although I'm not sure that's clear. But if you recall correctly, uh, when President Obama was there and uh, John Kerry was Secretary of State, the Iranians grabbed U.S. sailors, handcuffed them, put them face down on the deck of a boat, put guns at the back of their head, and then took pictures. And John Kerry described that, you know, well, that's a normal interchange of international relations. And like, no, it wasn't. I mean, if it's that diplomacy. had been Nixon, he'd have nuked Iran. If that had been Jimmy Carter, he'd have done something. If that had been Ike, he'd have started World War III. But Obama instead collapsed in face of them, shipped them money, gave everything away to them. And I think the Iranians literally thought they could get away with giving the finger to Trump by attacking the U.S. embassy. And they actually thought they'd get away with it. And why not? Because they've been getting away with it for several years now. Uh, so, now so, I think they've got to recalculate. So what could create this ground war? Like, let's say, uh, uh, or any ground war, could Iran nuke or, or heavily firebomb Israel? I, I don't think they can do anything big in the U.S., but I don't know. Is there something big they could do right here on U.S. soil? They have a bunch of proxies. And I mean, we just had a thing here six months ago. Uh, a Hezbollah guy in America was caught uh, going through Toronto Airport for the seventh time. That's the largest airport in Canada, by the way, Toronto Pearson. And it appears he was doing surveillance of the airport. And it appears he had an inside person working at Pearson Airport to help him do the surveillance of the airport. So why would a Hezbollah guy be doing surveillance of a major airport? And by the way, he was operating out of the United States. And there's a bunch of these guys. So there are a bunch of known and unknown Hezbollah operators in America, in Canada, and as I mentioned, throughout most of Europe, Southeast Asia, Venezuela, a few other places. So their ability to strike at that sort of level, i.e. bombs in airports or assassinations kind of thing, is there. Whether they choose to use it or not, of course, is the $64 billion question. Uh, what do you think? Um, it's hard to say. I don't think Iran can get into a major confrontation with the U.S. right now without the risk of losing their government. So just by example... Uh, Iran is a rich or Iran has money because of its oil industry. Uh, the rest of the country is kind of crappy in terms of industry. They have a car industry and electronics industry, but the money comes from the oil. That's where it comes from. Rather stupidly, the Iranian government built up a good chunk of their refining and shipping uh, capabilities on Karg Island, which is just off the coast of Iran, about two thirds of the way up the Gulf. <laughs> so what they did is they put about half their refining and shipping capability on one small island where it was very convenient. They can drive the super tankers up. They can run pipelines to the shore. It's a great facility for moving oil. What it also, though, is a single point of failure. So one B-52 with a series of cruise missiles, one SSGN submarine uh, could literally destroy Iran's oil industry uh, in like half an hour. Um, so so that could then lead to event, you know, it'll, it'll take money from the leaders and could lead to events that could overthrow the government potentially. Yeah, I think the government is already we're already worried about internal dissent because they've had three or four real good goes in the last couple of years of getting rid of them. So they know they've got an internal problem. If all of a sudden they lose their money stream as well, then they're in real trouble. But like we also said, 
they've got a problem with face. Uh, their greatest single warrior, the guy they put forth as the unconquerable hero, uh, the guy they made into kind of a Greek god, well, it turns out the pedestal was sitting on sand and the pedestal has now collapsed. Uh, and that's a huge loss of face for the Iranians. So they have to strike back. So I would suspect the arguments going on inside the Iranian government right now. One is, you know, we need to strike the devil America. We need to hit them at every chance we get. But the other voices are going, yeah, we can do it. But can we withstand the, the punishment coming back? The other wild card in all of this, of course, is President Trump. He tends to be a bit, shall we say, mercurial. Uh, he's a bit unpredictable. Um, a lot of people think that his ego drives his decision making. I'm not sure. He's a long-term investor. He does real estate deals, which take years to do. But nonetheless, he does kind of have an ego problem. So Trump is kind of noted to be like a 0% or 100% guy. He either does nothing or he goes full bore. Uh, and I think one of the reasons nobody has challenged America for the last three years is they actually think Trump might be a bit crazy. Um, and this is why the uh, the Russians were afraid of Nixon, but they weren't really afraid of uh, Reagan. They thought Reagan was tough and strong, but they thought Nixon was crazy. Uh, and the same assessment is made of Trump. If you push this guy up against the wall, what will he do? And Obama, so why, why, of course, why isn't Trump already or why isn't any leader like why isn't NATO already bombed this island that to take out all given all the egregious assaults Iran has done either directly or through proxy on all these countries that you mentioned? Why hasn't NATO as a, an alliance or, or just the U.S. already taken out this island? Why go after this one guy? Well, I mean, a lot. <laughs> well, I mean, going after the one guy is what you might call message sending. Some people say it's an act of war. Uh, it may or may not be, depending upon your definition. But clearly, the killing of uh, Soleimani was a message from Trump to Iran that said, back off or I'll hurt you. Um, and message sending, of course, in international politics is actually it's a whole field in political science itself, the studying of how countries send messages, which quite frequently get misinterpreted on the other end. Uh, for instance, when the United States first went to Vietnam, they chose to send a light Marine brigade rather than a heavy Marine brigade because they didn't like the political message that a heavy Marine brigade would send. The Vietnamese in North Vietnam thought they were being invaded. End of discussion. Um, so that's kind of, you know, the message sending is sometimes uh, complicated and the actual messages get lost. But I think the message from Trump to uh, to the Ayatollah is back off, leave me alone, don't push me or I'll get angry. By the way, I'm going to whack your most your most revered uh, warrior just as a demonstration of how bad I can hurt you if I want to. So, so I mean, can, he's taken the can, ball and put it in Iran's court. Now, why has nobody done this before? Well, I don't know. Uh, why didn't somebody knock out Osama bin Laden uh, after he attacked the USS Cole? Uh, appeasement, lack of will. Democracies are slow to make decisions. They need consensus a lot of times to make decisions. And democracies just suck at this kind of stuff. Uh, Kennedy had some interesting views on that, but that's another story. Anyway. But but here, here we're even seeing now there's a lot of... Um dissent even among our allies that the U.S. shouldn't have done this without some sort of consensus. How much should we weigh that? You know, given that you're right about message sending, it's often confusing and it's all about perception. If Iran sees, oh, the U.S.'s allies aren't necessarily backing this, does that give them a little bit more strength to retaliate? Yeah, it get, they're going to look for wedge points. They're going to look for weak points where they can drive themselves in. Uh, the German foreign minister has you know, said he wants to talk with the Iranian foreign minister about de-escalation, which will be seen by the Iranians as weakness, uh, absolutely certain. 
so yeah, there's uh, the idea of Western solidarity is kind of an issue. And on this issue, it's all over the place. Part of it, I think, is just the orange man bad sort of Trump derangement syndrome that, you know, if Trump cured cancer tomorrow, the headline would read, you know, Trump puts doctors out of work. Um, so there's a certain amount of that going on. Uh, but there's also some genuine fears that a wider conflict in the Middle East could find itself turning into a, I mean, I don't think World War III is, is a sensible thing, but it could be a very serious regional war. And as we kind of mentioned, or other people have alluded to, there are nuclear weapons in the region, which are... Listen, Iran might have a nuclear weapon. We don't really know. We, we don't really know. I don't think they do. But the question has to arise, um, would Iran go nuclear in a situation like this? Now, bizarrely enough, about three or four years ago, I was at a conference and the guy who was the head of the former head of Shin Bet was there. And when I figured out, like, hang on, this guy is the former head of Shin Bet, I just like drove right over to him, stuck my finger politely in his chest, uh, and asked. And then you, and then they, and then he killed you. Well, I mean, that's why I was polite when I put my finger out. But, but I, I mean, I went after him uh, very politely, but very directly, and said, you know, sir, do you think at the end of the day, Iran will use nuclear weapons? if in fact they have them. And his answer was quite fascinating. It was very well thought out. And he said, look, the Iranian leadership is not crazy. He goes, Ayatollah Khomeini and Ayatollah Khamenei are not insane. They're not crazy. They're aggressive. They're dangerous. They're cruel. Uh, they crush their own populations. They kill thousands of people uh, and don't lose any sleep over it. But he goes, they're not insane. They're not crazy. They do not want Iran turned into a parking lot which would, is what would happen if they ever launched an initial nuclear react. And then the interesting, the interesting caveat to that was, however, he said, they are theocrats. They do genuinely believe in end-of-the-world kind of scenarios where Islam will challenge Christianity and the rest of the world and Judaism and all this sort of stuff. He goes, if the government of Iran, and by that he means the, the jurist, uh, that is to say the Ayatollah, and his council that is around him, if they perceived they were about to be driven from power or wiped off the map or whatever, he goes, they could lash out blindly at that point. So anything we do would have to be, well, I don't know. There's nothing we can, it's not like we could just go walk in there. We'd have to kind of hope that the Iranian citizens have enough power at some point, given the weakening of Iran, to 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 act. And maybe that could happen if we, if, if they ever do anything to attack us, even through a proxy. And then you're saying maybe our response would be taking out this island where the refinery operations are. Then there's probably a couple of steps internally that happens that sparks revolution. And then I don't know. Yeah. Here's, here's a basic military truth. No war ever goes according to the plan ever. Uh, all you can do at the end of the day is be prepared for the wild cards that come your way and then see what happens. And one of the wild cards in all of this, the question is, does Iran have a nuclear capability and would they be willing to use it? I still don't think they have the ability to deliver a nuclear missile over a, a distance. And by distance, I mean Israel. Um, but having said that, that has to be kept in the back of everybody's mind that if the Iranian government perceives itself as having a knife right up against its throat, or they perceive themselves as being crushed by a foreign power, they will strike out blindly. And that would be nuclear, biological, chemical, and kinetic. Uh, so so, 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 so you're, you're saying they're going to have to retaliate in some way, but they have to figure out a way to retaliate that we don't retaliate huge against them. Like it's it's sort of hard to see how 
how this doesn't keep escalating. Yeah, it's kind of like a, a <laughs> you hate to use this analogy, but it's like uh, a war between two gangs. They both have to posture. They both have to control the territory or their block or their part of the city. Both of them have to posture in that they're very strong. Neither one of them wants to get into a full-fledged fight in case they get wiped out altogether. And that's kind of where Iran is at. They they have to posture. They have to be seen to be strong. They have to seen be taking vengeance for their, you know, their Greek-like god war hero. Um, but at the same time, the government there is painfully aware of the fact that they're going to get wiped out if it gets out of hand. So this is the international dance that always goes on. And there's a couple of analogies. One is what we referred to already as World War I. Who planned World War I? And the answer is nobody. Nobody right. planned World War I. It was totally an accident that this Archduke, I mean, he, they got him on his second drive around. Uh, yeah. You know, and he was a nobody. Uh, Vienna. At the end of the day, he was also a nobody. He was an archduke, but he was like, I forget, like 37th in line for the crown or whatever. He was just a nobody. But what was going on in Europe at the time, there's an analogy to it is empires were rising. Empires were falling. The nature of industry had changed. It had completely upset the power balance in Europe. The Brits were looking at the Germans. The Germans were looking at the Russians. The Russians were looking at everybody. The French hated everyone. Uh, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire was weak and everybody knew it. Uh, so Sounds like the exact same thing is still happening in Europe. <laughs> uh, well, arguably right now it's going through another phase of that 100 years later. And quite arguably, the analogy is fair for the Middle East right now. The Saudis, however one describes them, are not in ascendance. They are clearly on some sort of downward trajectory. The Iranians are on a hugely upward trajectory, at least in their own minds and their ability to project power. Uh, Iraq is gone as a country. Uh, the government of Iraq controls maybe a third of the country on a good day. Uh, Syria is gone as a country. Yemen's gone as a country. Lebanon's gone as a country. So the Middle East is going to go through a series of contortions and nobody knows what it looks like. And the analogy to World War I, I don't think is all that bad right now, that... Uh, Nobody planned World War I, but it turned into that absolute disaster that, God, I forget how many people killed. It was like 20 million people died in just the war. And then there was the follow-on uh, flu epidemic that killed another few million. Um, so so that's so, so the, the question is, could this also, in an optimistic view, lead to some sort of rapid de-escalation where everybody gets it, sits at the table and works out a deal? Well, it may also, I mean, depending on who is in ascendance in the Iranian government, uh, I see somebody in Iran, it was one of them, it was their foreign minister, somebody said, you know, they're going to go to the United Nations and get the United Nations to send a strongly worded letter of protest to America. And I thought, even in normal times, who cares? Um, the yeah. fact that the Iranians would say that absolutely baffled me, uh, that they would actually say something as silly as that coming from the United Nations right now, which Trump just kind of, well, he wants to get rid of it anyway. Uh, so there is, I think, within Iran, we're going to have to watch and see who's in ascendance, who has the, uh, who has the, the growing power uh, as to how they choose to respond to this. So, and again, like we've mentioned, they've got to be strong enough to appear strong, but they can't be too confrontational without provoking a strike back. Uh, the wild cards, as I mentioned, uh, Saudi Arabia is a wild card. No one's quite sure where they're going. The Russians are a wild card in all this. We haven't talked about them. Uh, the Chinese have some interests in the region as well, although they're not likely to push too hard on this right now. Uh, the French have an interest in the region. Hezbollah has its own security and its own future at stake. Uh, and all of these people are players who could upset the apple cart if they take one wrong step. So so uh, probably no fear of major 
attack slash world war happening, at least, you know, anytime soon. Probably mostly like uh, maybe some retaliation on some military uh, target that might not might only be peripherally related to the U.S. because they don't want to, you know, poke the bear a little bit more. Uh, and you're saying, you know, Iraq, Iran's going to continue to weaken in terms of their economy. So all these proxy wars that they're fighting might get more unstable with this, particularly with their main guy out of action. There might be more instability in in the government. Uh, I think there's probably some issue in terms of like, you know, like you mentioned, you know, Trump may or may not be crazy and there may or may not be a wag the dog thing going on here. So so that's hurting some of his the consensus among political leaders in the U.S. and political leaders around the world. So that's going to have some effect. And uh, but no matter what the retaliation, we have plenty of easy targets that won't necessarily hurt civilians that could be good for us without necessarily involving a war. Yeah, I mean, the uh, the government of Iran itself, uh, like any other country, has critical infrastructure, oil, water, shipping ways, that kind of stuff. Uh, and that stuff is terribly vulnerable to things like cruise missile attacks uh, or, you know, a variety of forms of standoff attacks. Uh, so, again, if push comes to shove, the Iranians' critical infrastructure uh, will be given a blow from which it cannot recover uh, in the first few days. Uh, so. I don't think Iran wants to get into a major war because they realize their critical infrastructure would just be devastated in a few days. Having said that, the Iranians also, of course, know that they can put a whole series of small damages on the U.S. They can hit uh, a variety of bases. They can set off terrorist attacks. They've got allies that will help them out. I don't know if you noticed in Kenya today, uh, al-Shabaab attacked a Kenyan-American military base there, which resulted in a firefight for a couple of hours. Um, hmm, whether that's that, directly that. connected is hard to say. But a number of Islamists, that is to say people who support political Islam around the world, even if they don't like the Shia and even if they don't like Iran, they'll see this as a chance to to poke the eagle in the eye. Uh, that's the Muslim Brotherhood. That's Jama Islamia. That's, you know, a whole variety of groups. What's left of ISIS in uh, Iraq and Syria itself, what's left of ISIS in Bosnia, uh, ISIS in uh, Afghanistan, the ISIS force in Nigeria, and the ISIS force in the Philippines. We'll all be watching this saying, is this a good moment to stick uh, somebody in the eye with a pencil uh, just because everybody's all tense and all wound up? So I would also say, I mean, stand by for an increase in just general silliness uh, in a number of regions around the world, Burkina Faso, Mali, Kenya, uh, Nigeria, for sure, where there's already an organized genocide against the Christians going on by an Islamist force. Uh, France, Belgium, and Sweden are particularly weak in this area due to the huge numbers of Islamists they've got in their countries. So stand by for that kind of stuff and statements. We just had a, a protest in Toronto last night here in Canada that a, uh, a society from Pickering, which is known to be supported by Iran, organized a vigil and created a uh, sort of a monument to Suleimani in Toronto, uh, saying what a great leader he was. And then a bunch of Iranians showed up, got into a scrap, and then the police sent everybody home. But that's Were just Iranians an indicator. trying to support or deny? Oh, no, they're very strongly in support of Suleimani, saying he was the Iranian hero and Trump is a dog for having killed him and all this sort of stuff. And this is downtown Toronto. So this gives you an idea of how incredibly deep the Iranians are in a number of cities and uh, cities around the world where they have people who they can call out and say, get out there and support Suleimani. So what, what about also uh, there? So I heard that this company 
I think they're called gray noise. They track uh, cyber uh, warfare around the world, uh, all you know, twenty four seven. And they said they've noticed uh, an eighteen hundred percent increase in potential attacks or weird, weird potential attacks happening around the world yesterday. So what do you think the potential is there? Okay, so what we've been talking about so far is the physical world and the kinetic world. Uh, Kinetics, in this case, being military force, missiles, bombs, guns, that sort of thing. We haven't talked about the cyber world at all. A number of attacks uh, of late, which are cyber in orientation, come mostly from China. uh, And that state policy where China is trying to steal information or crush people or do whatever. Uh, The Russians are into it heavily. But in a lot of cases, that's uh, independent operators who are just in it for the money or stealing technology. But behind that is Iran. Uh, And Iran has been working very hard to develop a cyber capability. And a few years ago, I can't think, it was probably 2012, something like that. TD America, which is a Canadian-owned bank, but which actually operates in America, uh, was attacked. And another American bank was attacked by uh, a, a cyber brigade that was supposed to be from Palestine. But the reality was it was Iran doing it. So Iran demonstrated eight years ago they have the capability to reach into the American financial system and damage it. Uh, That, of course, works both ways, that America also has been developing its own cyber capability. And as they've demonstrated in the past when they wiped out the Iranian centrifuge capability, that they also can mess with Iran. Here's the interesting analogy. A Why haven't we had a real cyber war yet? Why haven't we seen some really nasty cyber attacks coming out of Iran or Russia or China or America or whatever? And it's the nuclear analogy. The problem with a nuclear war, uh, even if you use tactical weapons, is every time you game out a nuclear war, it always winds up the same way. Everything gets turned to toast and nobody wins. The same thing has happened with cyber war. Every time they game out a cyber war, and this is America, this is Russia, whatever, Every time they game it out, it turns into an absolute uh, catastrophe for all concerned. So, you know, people are concerned that, oh, you know, we could wipe out the U.S. power grid or we could shut down the Internet or we could shut down more critically the payments and settlements system. And the answer seems to be that if a full-fledged cyber attack came out of Iran and they hit, say, for instance, the Bank of International Settlements in Switzerland, they hit the U.S. Fed, they hit the Bank of England or whatever, Uh, the Americans could probably return the favor and shut down a good chunk of their grid or take out parts of it kinetically and have the same effect of shutting down their cyber capability. So I think you'll see there's already been one minor U.S. government agency which is in charge of giving documents to Americans for free. So if you want some American government document, you go to this American government website and they'll email it to you. Well, the, somebody has already hijacked that site on behalf of Iran and, the, and said this is, you know, this is about the killing of Soleimani. So That's a distinct possibility, but I would say an all-out cyber attack by Iran on America is unlikely because the people who run the country, while they're dangerous, while they're cruel, while they're theocratic uh, dictators, uh, I don't think they're insane. Um, I really don't. And if they were to go full-on into a cyber attack, it could come back at them twice as bad. So, so Tom, uh, I think... After this conversation, I'm feeling a little bit better. <laughs> I'm not 100% sure because because there does seem like there is, of course, there's always the possibility of either retaliation or somebody on behalf of Iran doing something crazy and inappropriately that nobody wanted. And now everyone has to escalate at the same time. So there's always this chance for that. But we'll see. Yeah. And uh, 
but I think I have a bit a better understanding of this. I also want to mention we have another podcast that was more in depth that you and I did a few weeks ago about the whole state of the region and how this happened, the historical basis and your and your background and so on. But given the, this these news events, I wanted to uh, talk to you basically and, and release this immediately just to kind of give people comfort and um, I guess. To close this, well, hey, how do people find you? Uh, they can follow me uh, on Twitter. Uh, they can go to the Quiggin Report, Q-U-I-G-G-I-N. Just go into Google or whatever and look up Quiggin Report. It'll take you to my podcast series. Uh, or you can go on Twitter or Facebook and find us the same way there. Uh, yeah, just in closing, I would say the same sort of thing. Are we looking at World War III? No, I think the people that are hyperventilating about World War III are maybe, uh, I think they're just wrong or they're doing it for political reasons. Um, are we looking at a possible regional conflict? I'm not even sure that's there. But yeah, as always, there's the issue of strategic surprise. Strategic surprise is a continuous factor throughout all of our history. And the greatest danger now lies in a Gabriel Princip kind of moment uh, where some idiot guy in Serbia decided he wanted, or in uh, Sarajevo, sorry, some idiot guy in Sarajevo decided he wanted to whack the Archduke and he did it inadvertently setting off World War I. And that would be my great fear right now that somebody who thinks they're operating on behalf of Iran or on the support of radical Islam or they think they're supporting the Islamist political movement does something which is both A, massively stupid, but B, successful. Uh, that's the wild card. That's the thing you have to look out for. Would you fly a plane from New York to L.A. right now? Yeah, probably. I mean, uh, I was just flying around the U.S. a while ago. I went from St. Louis to San Jose, San Diego and back. And, no one uh, cares about those cities. It's New York and L.A. Yeah. Well, it was the same thing. I mean, I got repeatedly groped and prodded and whatever uh, by a variety of nice, polite young uh, individuals. Um, but, you know, uh, I think, you know, your chances of dying in a terrorist attack are rather remote. Terrorism is not yet an existential threat to America. Uh, but it is. Uh, I mean, I'd be more worried about a New York subway or a, uh, a guy with a gun in Times Square or something like that. Uh, you're looking at a a sole actor, an individual carrying out a minor plot with him or one of his buddies on a spur of the moment kind of thing. Attacking U.S. airliner right now is, is you know, you can do it, but oh my God, it's a lot of work and you got to be really good in order to do that now. Uh, you'll notice nobody's done it really since 9-11. Yeah, I always wondered about why, but I guess it has gotten harder. Although, by the way, just as an aside, I had to fly from New York City to Chicago about a week or so ago. I get to the airport. I have no ID on me at all. It's the first time I've ever done this in 40 years of flying on planes. And I have no ID. I have no passport, no driver's license, no nothing. And they they said, they, you know, they call over the supervisor. They said, well, where are you going? I said, I'm, uh, I'm going to Chicago. And they're like, ah, just go on through. <laughs> now, did they ask you? They must have asked you your name or whatever. Yeah. yeah well, they, they asked for me from the tickets and, you know, I had a, I had a boarding pass and they did go through my bags a little more thoroughly yeah the good news is you're kind of famous or infamous depending on who's talking about you uh so if you're that bitcoin guy we hate you yeah but if somebody you know you present the ticket you say you don't have any id he goes to his supervisor they type your name into google up pops your picture a couple hundred times and they look at you and go yeah that's probably him uh, does this guy have a bomb on him does he have a gun on him no uh so we'll we'll assess that he's uh Careless and not too bright for having his ID, but we won't assess that he's malicious. Uh, not to put too fine a point on it, but your name was, I don't know, 
Ahmed and you were from, I don't know, Saudi Arabia or Iran or Lebanon, I think you, and they didn't know who you were, you'd have got a much rougher time. Well, now probably after this podcast, I'm going to get a rougher time. So yeah, you probably uh, will. Yeah. But Tom, thank you so much for for you know responding to this, and and I'm sure it's going to um, help a lot of people understand this situation more. And once again, I always value our our conversations. Uh, also, for people listening to this, stay tuned uh, uh, soon. Also, for a more in depth podcast with Tom. And again, Tom, thank you so much, James. Thanks very much. It's been great. Appreciate it. 